Our second reading for the morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 6. I'll begin reading at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and anyone who comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing at all that he has given me, but, but raise it up on the last day. This is indeed the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. This is the Word of God. Would you pray with me? God, we're so grateful for your promises, and we acknowledge that at times in life we're more aware of the circumstances around us then we are aware of your great promises. We're grateful for your promises, and your promises make all the difference in our life in this world and in our world to come. We pray, God, that you will give each one of us ears to hear what you're saying to us this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit. Because we're gathered in this place today, may we continue our journey of transformation to be more fully devoted disciples of Jesus Christ in this world. In his name we pray. Amen. The way life is structured, it feels oftentimes that we get punched in our gut and we are bent over double with the loss of our breath and then just about the time we can stand erect again and catch our breath, there comes another gut punch. Our world being structured like it is continues to barrage us with uh, so much bad news that we hold desperately, hopefully, onto the good news that is before us. One bad, hard, harsh, difficult story after another, it seems. I don't know about you, but over the years, I've got to where I can watch less and less of the evening news broadcast. That's life as we've always known it. That's the way life in this world has always been structured. Life has always been a challenge. I remember years ago when M. Scott Peck wrote that bestseller entitled Road Less Traveled that so many people read. He started that book off with the famous title, Life is Difficult. And life is very difficult. I first met Warren... 38 years ago, when I showed up as a Duke student at his church. 
It was his church because Warren's father was the senior pastor there at the church. So I got to know Warren's father really well because I was serving as a Duke student there. And I got to know Warren and the family and the congregation from that church. And that also is the church from whence I found my wife, Tammy. So for 38 years, I've known that family. I first met Warren 38 years ago when I went to that church. He was only a couple years older than I was, but he was already in the beginning stages of what probably would have been a very successful career in the textile industry. He had been trained at a very exclusive school regarding the textile industry, and he thought that was to be his calling for life. And then just a couple years after I first met Warren, he continued to deal with his call into the ministry till he answered that call to the ministry. So for 30 plus years, I watched Warren serve, after he was educated and trained, serve as a United Methodist pastor here in our conference. And Warren had a great, great pastorate. He led a lot of people to Christ because his love for Jesus Christ was very, very evident in a lot of ways. I think that was part of what he received as a gift from his father, the other Methodist preacher, who, by the way, at age 85, is still serving a church in our conference. Warren served among us for many, many years. He had a very successful ministry among us. And then on August the 1st of this year, just a few weeks ago, Warren preached a sermon to his congregation there at First United Methodist Church in Marion, North Carolina. He preached a sermon on Jesus being the bread of life. And he shared with his congregation what, what it means to receive Jesus as the bread of life. I've watched that sermon. Warren shared with his congregation that morning about Jesus being the sustenance of God for our spiritual life in this world and the world to come. And after service, Warren left and he went home, had lunch with his family. And then he participated, he participated in that uh, distinguished old custom of Methodist preachers, the, the, the Sunday afternoon nap. But he never awoke from that nap. As he was sleeping, he stepped over into the other side. Just within a couple hours of walking out of his pulpit, talking about Jesus as the bread of life, he made the transition through the veil to the other side and experienced the full presence of Jesus, the bread of life. I have gone back and watched Warren's last sermon that he delivered to his congregation there in Marion just a couple hours before he left us for the world to come. And he did present to his congregation in a very powerful way what it means to believe that Jesus Christ is the great I Am and to believe that Jesus Christ is the bread of life for us. We hear in this gospel text before us today that Jesus is the bread of life. I hope 
that each one of you here in this place today realize that He is the bread of life, and without that bread, we do not live. Without that bread, we do not exist. That bread is essential for living. He, Jesus Christ, is the, is the new manna that has come down from heaven to sustain us. Here in John's Gospel, we run across seven of those magnificent I am statements from, from Jesus. Anytime you run across an I am statement from Jesus, you know you're reading the Gospel of John. That's where we find the I am statements of Jesus. And this I am statement before us this morning in John chapter 6 is the first of all the I am statements in the Gospel of John. In chapter 8, Jesus says to us, I am the light of the world. And I'm so glad he says he's the light of the world because we're engulfed in so much darkness. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. And I'm so glad he is the door. He is our entrance into the security of the sheepfold. In chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and we all know how desperately we need shepherding, and I'm glad he provides us as the good shepherd. In John chapter 11, as Jesus is by the tomb of his friend Lazarus, Jesus says to Martha and those gathered there, I am the resurrection and I am life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, Yet shall they live. And then still yet a little later in John chapter 14, on the night of Jesus' betrayal, the night before his own death, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm so grateful because this world brings so much confusion to us. But he is the way, the truth, and the life. In chapter 15, Jesus said, I am the true vine. And that reminds us that if we stay connected to him, we will receive the sustenance that he delivers. But it's here in chapter 6, in this paragraph before us this morning, where Jesus first offers an I am statement. And he says, I am the bread of life. This is the I am statement that begins all of these I am statements in the Gospel of John. And even before we get to all the I am statements, we just hear Jesus saying rather audaciously, I am. And there are places in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I am, and he says nothing else except I am. And the Jewish community gathered around Jesus knew exactly what Jesus was claiming every time Jesus said, I am. Because their mind would go back to Exodus chapter 3 when Moses encountered the living God at the burning bush. And by the way, you see, a, you see a design of the burning bush every time you walk through these center doors here. There was Moses at that burning bush out in the desert, an encounter with God. And Moses said to God, what is your name? The people will ask me back in Egypt what your name is. And God revealed God's name to Moses when God said, I am that I am. God is the great I am. And that's why we know, and the Jews who listen to Jesus know, what Jesus was claiming when in the Gospel of John he kept saying, I am. He really didn't have to say anything else, but he did offer us further descriptors regarding I am, such as what's before us this morning. I am 
the bread of life. I'm so glad that Warren talked to his congregation about what it means to receive Jesus as the bread of life. I, I desperately hope each one of you know what it means to receive Jesus as the bread of life. He is the incarnation of God, the great I am, but he is the sustenance of God. He is the new manna come down to help sustain us in the midst of this desert through which we wander. He is the bread of life. That's how essential Jesus is for the journey. He is the bread of life. You know, we see a lot of people, particularly in our modern culture, who are so concerned about their physical health and their physical well-being, and that's important. Our bodies are gifts from God, and we should so uh, care for our body that our body can be, as Paul says, a temple for the Holy Spirit in which the Holy Spirit can reside. We need to care for our bodies. That's why we in the Christian community, we started doctors and hospitals and hospices because we believe that the body is a great creation, a great gift from God. But we also need to make sure that we care for our souls, our spirits, and we know that Jesus is the spiritual sustenance for us. If we don't care for our spirits, if we're just concerned about our bodies, we get out of balance, we become diseased, we become diseased. We have to maintain balance in our life. We do need to care for our bodies, but we need to make sure that we're caring for our souls also. And that's why we need to hear Jesus reminding us, I am the bread of life. Apart from Jesus, our soul will starve and shrivel and die. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He is essential for life in this world, and he is essential for life in the world to come, which is why three times here in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, two times in the text before us this morning, Jesus says, after he's told us he's the bread of life, he says, I will raise you up on the last day. If you receive me, if you feast on me, if you consume me, if you allow me to take up residency in your life, I will raise you up on the last day. And Jesus is very specific about being raised, what that means. He's very specific about the last day. That's a very specific day. He says he will raise us up. Those who have received him as the bread of life, he will raise us up on the last day. And this brings us to the last part of our profession that we call the Apostles' Creed. This brings us, I guess you could say, to the climax, the triumphal ending of the Apostles' Creed, where we profess as a community, where we profess as individuals that I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. We really do believe in the resurrection of the body. Now let me do some, some high-powered theology with you for a moment. Here the word body means body. Now I know in the last 150 years a lot of Americans in the Western culture in Western Europe, they think resurrection, resurrection life, the resurrection of the body is a metaphor for ongoing spiritual existence. Well, when we in the Christian community, because we come out of the Jewish faith, when we say we believe in the resurrection of the body, we, we mean the resurrection of the body, this flesh. When you die and you lay this body aside, and however you lay this body aside, you are not finished. 
with your body? Because we believe in the resurrection of the body. And that is not just some metaphor or image for ongoing life. We believe in the resurrection of the body. We Christians are rather complex about this issue because we come out of both the Greek and the Jewish world. So we confuse people, but I hope none of you in this room are confused. We confuse the world around us. We do believe in the immortality of the Spirit. We do fervently believe that if you're in Christ, if you've received Jesus as the bread of life, when you take your last breath here on this earth, your next breath will be in the presence of God. That's the immortality of the soul. That's the immortality of the spirit. We do believe in the ongoing reality, existence of our souls, of our spirits. And the Greek world believed in that. Oprah Winfrey believes in that. A lot of people believe that you go on, your, your essence goes on, your, your spiritual life goes on after death. We do believe that. That's why Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Those are the only two options we have. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We're either in the body or we're with the Lord. At death, our spirit goes to be with Jesus. But that's not the end of the story for us. We don't just die and go to heaven. We do, but that's not the end of the story for us. In the Jewish and the Christian tradition, we believe there's something beyond that. We believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. You know, Jesus believed in the resurrection of the body. You hear it here. He's talking about how on the last day, that last day of history... When God in Christ consummates and finishes his work here in this world, on that last day, Jesus says, I will raise you up. Jesus believed in the resurrection of the body. He was a good Jew in the first century. He believed in the resurrection of the body. They had read the book of Daniel that you heard Ron read from a few moments ago, where Daniel said in the Hebrew Bible that those who rest in the dust will come alive again one day. As a good Jew, he, he didn't sing the song we sing, but he knew the book of Ezekiel about them dry bones coming back together in the resurrection of the body. If you travel with me to Israel as we stand on the Mount of Olives looking into the old city of Jerusalem, you see the Kidron Valley. And what you see in the Kidron Valley there is a massive number of Jewish graves. Because they believe that when Messiah comes, we say returns, but they believe that when Messiah comes and the resurrection of the body occurs, the resurrection will begin right there on the Mount of Olives. And that's why members of the Jewish community love to be buried there on the Mount of Olives. But Jesus was a good Jew, and like the good Jews of his day, they believed in the resurrection of the body at the end of history. There were some Jews who didn't believe in that. Those were the Sadducees. And we see in the Gospels that Jesus argued with the Sadducees. He sided with the Pharisees and tried to argue down the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. They thought that was too material, too vulgar, too much of this world. They just wanted the spiritual reality. Some of them anyway, just wanted the spiritual reality of continuing existence. But Jesus was a good Jew, so we inherited that in the Christian faith. We believe that your spirit at death can go and rest and be rewarded in the presence of the perfect joy that God provides for us. But then, at the end of history, 
there'll be that morning that Michael sang about a few moments ago. My Lord, what a morning. There'll be that morning that he sang about a few minutes ago when our bodies and our spirits will be reunited. I believe in the resurrection of the body. That's the historic faith. And the reason it is important is this. Jesus did not die to just save your soul. Now the death of Jesus and your faith in Jesus saves your soul. But when Jesus finishes Jesus' work one day, paradise will be restored. The Garden of Eden will be back on steroids. All creation will be redeemed. Remember what John saw at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21? He saw the end when he said, Behold, I see a new heaven and a new earth come down. And all things are made new. So we Christians are a little complex. We believe both in the immortality of the soul and in the resurrection of the body. And part of it is we believe that all of creation is God's good creation. It's all fallen right now. A hurricane, a tropical storm is hitting New England coast right now. That's part of the fallen nature of creation. That's what Paul meant when Paul said that this creation groans right now. This creation groans for redemption right now. Creation is beautiful, magnificent, but it's not perfect. Our bodies are beautiful, magnificent, but they're not perfect. But one day, my Lord, what a morning. One day, one day, the work of Jesus Christ will be complete. And God's will will be done here on earth, just like it's being done right now in heaven. Creation will be total and complete and perfect and Christ will offer all back to God. And God will be all in all. We believe in the resurrection of the body. Jesus taught the resurrection of the body. Paul taught the resurrection of the body in that magnificent 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, one of the longest chapters that we attribute to the Apostle Paul or give to the Apostle Paul. He talks about the resurrection of the body. And that's where he tells us this perishable body must put on imperishability one day. John taught the resurrection of the body, a verse that we use in the United Methodist tradition at the beginning of our funeral services comes from, Paul, from John's first letter where he said, Beloved, we are God's children right now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. When He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. I've participated in four funerals in the last seven, last eight days. And it's always a great gift to be able to declare that when he appears, Jesus appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. So Jesus, Paul, John, Daniel, Ezekiel, believed in the resurrection of the body, and that's why we can stand and say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And it doesn't matter what happens to us after death. It doesn't matter if our body's placed in the ground. It doesn't matter if we're cremated and placed in a niche. It doesn't matter if we're buried at sea. It doesn't matter if our body's destroyed in an explosion. The God who can raise the dead can take care of the resurrection of the body in whatever form or fashion we present ourselves to God in. 
But we know that at the end, all will be made complete. Think about the resurrection of Jesus. This would be the image for, for the New Testament. Think about the resurrection of Jesus. Think about those 40 days after his resurrection, before his ascension, those 40 days post-Easter when he's with his closest followers, there was something very much just like the old body of Jesus, but there was something very much unlike the old body of Jesus. You remember that the resurrected Jesus still bore the wounds of the crucifixion, and he was able to show those wounds to Thomas, right? You remember also, though, how Jesus could appear in rooms they had locked doors, and nobody had to open the door and unlock it and open the door. So as something remarkably the same and something remarkably different about the resurrection body of Jesus. And Paul says that resurrected Jesus was the first fruit of the coming harvest. And you and I who believe in Jesus Christ, we're the coming harvest. So when we say we believe in the resurrection of the body, we're not speaking metaphorically. We are speaking what we know to be the truth of the scriptures and the Jewish Christian tradition. Because our God is a big God and the redeeming work of Jesus Christ is a tremendous redeeming work of Jesus Christ. So my friend Warren stepped out of the pulpit on August the 1st, stepped out of the chancel, stepped out of the church, went home and shared a couple hours with his family. And then he stepped into the presence of Jesus. And his spirit and his remains are awaiting that day when all will be made new. May I pray with you and ask the Holy Spirit to finish this message in your heart. Jesus, we thank you that you are the bread of life and you provide a sustenance, a nourishment for us that we can receive nowhere else. We pray, God, that as we invite Jesus Christ into our lives, we don't allow him just to be an add-on to an already full existence, but we allow Jesus to be the center of all that we are. May the promises of Christ override all the circumstances of life. May our hope in Jesus Christ be the context through which we view all of life. May we be a people of audacious hope as we offer this hope to the world around us. May we be the people who are just beginning to learn the majesty of the work of Jesus Christ. We pray, God, that you will take all of us, take all that we are, take our congregation, and allow us to be faithfully devoted followers of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Please let us stand and join us in the historic confession of faith, the Apostles' Creed.